Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is John Good, and this is going to be your threat intel briefing for the week of December 11th, 2022 through December 17th. 2022. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way that uh, YouTube notifies you when there's new content that comes out. If you think of anything that you want to see on the channel, so not just related to this show, but uh, let me know about that. If you see things you like in this show that you want to see more of, let me know that as well, or things that you don't like, because I take in all that uh, feedback, and I try to incorporate that into the show, into the channel to make things better. If you're listening on podcasting platform, remember to do the same thing, to subscribe and leave a review. Again, let me know if you like it, if there's things that you want to hear about that we don't cover, and that way I can take in all that feedback and really just improve the overall show. Also check the description because there is a link to the show notes, so you'll be able to find all the articles that we talk about as well as other articles that maybe we don't discuss, but they're still relevant to the threat intel briefing and things that you should actually just take a quick glance at. So you're aware of all the things that are going on, not just the few articles that we cover in this episode. Without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump into the first article. So the first article is Pawn to Own Toronto 2022, Day 4. 989,000 awarded for 63 unique zero days. Pond to own Toronto 2022 is ended and the participants earned a total of $989,750 for 63 unique zero day exploits. 66 entries were submitted, 36 different teams representing 14 plus countries. So if you're not familiar with Pond to own, it's a really interesting kind of event where you can go as a team or individual, basically a researcher and submit uh, zero day bugs. So it's really, really interesting, really cool, and definitely worth looking at if you're into the research or the zero day exploit kind of side of things. Now, some examples of the awards that were won were on the fourth day of the competition, the researcher Chris uh, Anastasio demonstrated a heap-based buffer overflow against a Lexmark printer. He earned $10,000 and won master a pawn point. So there's a point ranking system where you can gain points basically by uh, the zero days, so, uh, but pretty cool system. Uh, the next one, the ANTHUD Information Security Department used another heap-based overflow to exploit the Canon printer. It earned $10,000. And the uh, NAM NP team hacked a Canon printer showing a surprise Pikachu on the display of the device. The team earned $10,000 and one master of pawn point. So again, really cool if you're into that research and exploit development side of things, and really just interesting in general to see some of the zero days that a lot of the talented people out there are able to come up with. So that's the big reason why I wanted to bring up that particular article. Next article, uh, antivirus and EDR solutions tricked into acting as data wipers. Security researcher has found a way to exploit the data deletion capabilities of widely used endpoint detection and response EDR and antivirus AV software from Microsoft, Sentinel-1, Trend Micro, Avast, 
and AVG to turn them into actual data wipers. Now, wipers, if you're not familiar with what these are, there's a spe they're a special type of destructive malware that uh, purposely erases or corrupts data on compromised systems and attempts to make it so that victims can't recover the data. Uh, antivirus and EDR security software constantly scan a computer's file system for malicious files, and then malware is detected, and it, uh, when it detects it, it attempts to quarantine or delete them. So think of this, you know, just in the grand scheme of things, right? We have all this security software that we really try to, um, you know, we try to find malicious things, malicious software, malware, attacks, you know, all this stuff, right? And if you're able to actually convince that software as an attacker that, you know, maybe it's legitimate or just basically in this case, trick it into deleting stuff, well, Obviously, that's not great, right? That's kind of a bad thing. Now, uh, some more information on this. Uh, there's a quote. Uh, it says, if I could go do something between these two events, basically, it's using um, something called a junction. Uh, but the idea is that an attacker could be able to point the EDR towards a different path. And these are called some, something called time of check or time of use. TOCTOU vulnerabilities. And basically before the EDR could delete a malicious file, the researcher would go in and they would quickly delete something like a ctemp folder and create a Windows junction from ctemp to cwindows. So that's really important. And the hope is that the EDR would attempt to delete the file that you put in. So in this case, in this article, they have a file called ndis.sys and that would, uh, due to the junction, it's now pointing to the legitimate file. So basically in the grand scheme of things, just trying to trick these systems and take advantage of how they work in an unsuspected way, right? In general, that's how, what hacking is. It's trying to take advantage of the systems or you know, get them to operate in an unsuspecting way, something that wasn't planned originally or intended originally for that software. So. You know, obviously very dangerous, <laughs> but um, definitely a very cool kind of tactic technique. I don't think that in general, you know, as a, a regular department or something like that, that you're gonna tackle this kind of issue, but you know, it's very interesting to be aware of. And if you work at a company like an EDR, EDR solution kind of company, you know, great thing to know, right? Uh, let's see here. Next article, Australia's Telstra suffers privacy breach, 132,000 customers impacted. Australia's largest telecoms firm, Telstra Corp Limited, uh, said on Sunday that 132,000 customers were impacted by an internal error that led to disclosure of customer details. Telstra, which has 18.8 million customer accounts, equivalent to three quarters of Australia's population, said in an internal review that they found the details uh, were made publicly available due to a misalignment of databases. The data exposed in that breach, taken as part of a sophisticated hack, included home addresses, driver's licenses, and uh, passport numbers in what was one of, the, one of Australia's biggest cybersecurity breaches. So, you know, if you didn't catch the episode last week, the show last week, we talked about that Australia was gonna amp up their fines for data breaches or uh, security incidents, right? Sec cybersecurity incidents. And so in this case, 
you know, this is kind of the first major breach since we talked about that in Australia. But basically, they were taking it down uh, from, I think it was like $2.2 million, uh, a fine for a data breach, all the way up to like $50 million, which is, you know, obviously a substantial increase. And, you know, the thing that's going to be interesting with this is what is Australia's government actually going to do, right? Like, are they going to actually not just say they're going to do it, but are they actually going to fine the company a significant amount of money, like $50 million, right? Or are we going to start to see how that, that scaling of that fine, because usually these fines, just like a, a ticket, like a speeding ticket or something like that, you have this scale where it kind of escalates, right? Like that's the maximum, the 50 million. And then somewhere in between here, you have this wiggle room where, you know, a judge is gonna fine you a million dollars or $50,000 because it's so small or, you know, whatever, right? And so we're gonna start to kind of see how that's gonna be played out, how that law is gonna be interpreted and how that's gonna be applied and executed against these companies. So definitely uh, gonna be an interesting thing to kind of watch. If you're in Australia, I'm sure you're closely watching this because it's going to directly impact you and your cybersecurity department. So, uh, yeah, we're, I, am, I am personally interested to see how this plays out because one thing that we see, too, is, you know, within uh, countries, when one country in, uh, enacts something, they put in a law something, right? Then we sometimes will start to see other governments or other countries start to kind of follow suit or try to learn from how that happened and try to maybe implement something similar, but a little bit different based on those lessons learned. So, you know, I think with data breaches and cybersecurity incidents, it's still a process where countries are learning, governments are learning, and, you know, we'll see, right? So we'll see what happens. Uh, let's see here. Next article, Twitter addresses November data leak uh, claims. Social media tw uh, company Twitter, Twitter's in the news again, right? Uh, has issued a public statement regarding allegations that it was hacked earlier this year. Writing in a blog post on Friday, the Elon Musk-owned platform said it learned that someone had potentially exploited a vulnerability that Twitter, Twitter reportedly discovered in January and fixed in June 2022. The flaw enabled someone submitting an email address to Twitter's systems to find an associated phone number if one existed and vice versa. Uh, after reviewing a sample of the available data for sale, we confirmed that, and this is a quote, we confirmed that a bad actor had taken advantage of the issues before it was addressed. At the time, we notified the affected users promptly, reads the blog post. As soon as we became aware of the news, Twitter's incident response team uh, compared the data in the new report data reported by the media on 21 July 2022. The comparison determined that the exposed data was the same in both use cases. So, you know, with this, right, first of all, it's not Elon Musk making the headlines of doing something, you know, out of the ordinary, out of, you know, crazy, right? But from a cybersecurity perspective, right, this should bring into perspective or kind of into light the idea that cybersecurity incidents and data breaches and things like that, you know, it takes a while to really know the full scope or the full magnitude of what happened, 
in one of these kind of incidents or events, right? It's not something that you can just go in day one and be like, yes, this was hacked, these systems were affected, and you know, this is, this is the results, right? It takes a while. And especially in complex companies or complex environments where you have a lot of uh, infrastructure, systems, databases, and you have pieces of data everywhere, right? Uh, it takes a while to kind of put together the pieces. And if it's a good hacker, it's a good attacker, then guess what? They probably were doing things for a while, you know, maybe for months. We've seen incidents where uh, attackers have been in networks, they've infiltrated networks for years, potentially, right? And so it's a very, very long process. You can't just go in day one and be like, yes, this is it, right? And we've even seen countries like India, uh, I think it was about a month ago, maybe a couple months ago, in one of the episodes that we did for this. And, you know, they were trying to implement these very aggressive uh, regulations as far as data breaches and data incidents. So it was like, I forget what it was, like 12 hours or something to report a data incident or a, a data breach or something. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, like look at this example of Twitter, who's like an extremely sophisticated company. And this says January, it was discovered, fixed in June. You know, so potentially we're talking about months and months of activity, right? Uh, and here we are in December, just talking about it now. So, you know, these events, they take a while, they take a while to figure out what actually happened. And I think that's the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind with this stuff. And especially if you're in cybersecurity and, or if you're in IT and you're trying to determine, you know, your, your incident response or your data breach policies, how you handle that, how you communicate that to customers, you know, how you go about that whole process, how you talk to the board or your executives, your leadership and relay that information. You know, you really want to um, have a, a good approach how you're gonna handle that, right? Don't walk in and say, you know all the answers on day one, please. You're, you're gonna regret that. <laughs> so yeah, but very interesting. It's always interesting to see Twitter in the news, right? We tend to see them a lot, right? So, you know, at least it's not Elon Musk this time, right? I'm sure there'll be an article on him next week. Okay, moving on, moving on. Uh, so this is a really interesting article. FBI's vetted information sharing network, InfraGuard, hacked. InfraGuard, a program ran by the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, to build cyber and physical threat information sharing partnerships with the private sector this week, saw its database of contact information of more than 80,000 members go up for sale on an English language cybercrime form. Meanwhile, the hackers responsible are communicating directly with members through the InfraGuard portal online, using an account under the assumed identity of a financial industry CEO that was vetted by the FBI itself. On December 10, 2022, the relatively new cybercrime form breached featured a bombshell new sales thread, the user database for InfraGuard, including names, contact information for tens of thousands of InfraGuard members. The FBI's InfraGuard program is supposed to be vetted 
uh, be a vetted who's who of key people in private sector roles, including both cyber and physical security at companies that manage most of the nation's critical infrastructures, including drinking water and power utilities, communications and financial services firms, transportation and manufacturing companies, healthcare providers, and nuclear energy firms. So, yeah, you can, you can look up InfraGuard and see what it is, right? Um, but basically the idea is that to become a member, you would go through this form, submit some information, submit who you are, um, you know, some stuff like that. And the FBI is supposed to be vetting uh, members of that distribution system. So, you know, that, that news system, that um, intelligence sharing system. And basically in this situation, somebody was able to go in there and um, get access, right? So I don't know if they, I don't know if they used like fake credentials, like a completely fake person, or if they posed to be something, somebody, right? Like using somebody's actual legitimate um, like name and stuff. Uh, but, you know, that's um, not great, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, right? Uh, the FBI, you know, they are supposed to look into people in this, uh, in this system. And somewhere there's some kind of gap as far as being able to, um, you know, vet people. Now, one of the other risks with that is think about the 80,000 members that are in that system, right? So it talked about the different industries and the key roles that potentially people in there, you know, play in those industries and those companies. So now some, uh, you know, some threat actor, some phishing, you know, expert or whatever, somebody that's going to go fish these people and try to contact them and communicate with them and potentially down the road, uh, try to utilize some of those relationships in a obviously malicious way. You know, now they have those high key profile people and it was pretty easy for them to get them. So not only did they get, you know, the names, they probably got uh, email addresses, maybe phone numbers, right? We don't, don't necessarily know, but they got contact information regardless. And so that's a big hurdle to overcome when these threat actors are trying to fish some of these people and, you know, contact them and go after them, right? Uh, but now they've had it from one single database. They were just able to pull all that information of current people too, right? It's not like, oh, these are people from 20 years ago that were running like some of the major financial institutions. These are current people that are in a, in a lot of cases, leadership or sensitive um, positions within those companies and industries. So, um, yeah, I mean, this reminds me of the OPM breach. Um, what was that about eight years ago where the OPM, basically the Office of Personnel Management, they, they housed a lot of information on people with clearances or the uh, Department of Defense and government, military, and their systems were all breached, or a few of the systems were breached, rather. And so a lot of that information leaked, too. Again, very sensitive information, not classified information, right? Uh, but sensitive information, for sure, because it makes it that much easier to target those individuals. So reminds me a lot of that kind of situation uh, where just, you know, there was gaps in controls or some way that somebody was able to find a way in, right? So 
Not cool, not cool. Uh, let's see here. Next article, Hive Ransomware Gang Claims Responsibility for Attack on an on Intersport that left cash registers disabled. Sports retail giant Intersport, which boasts some 6,000 stores worldwide in 57 countries, has fallen victim to a ransomware attack, which disabled checkouts in France during what should have been one of the busiest times of the year. Shoppers at Intersport inter, uh, stores in some parts of France were reportedly met with signs telling them that the cyber attack was preventing the use of cash registers, loyalty card, and gift services, gift card services. Intersport were, was uh, quoted saying that uh, because the hack happened on November 23rd, stores were impacted during Black Friday sales promotions, which would normally be expected to use, uh, be especially busy. Manual checkouts and che uh, checkouts, which were not connected to Intersport's central network, were said to be operational. One store manager told the media at the time, we work with manual checkouts. We, uh, we have to note everything by hand to ensure that the stocks follow, which sometimes causes a bit of a wait. So, uh, you know, stores and businesses that deal with uh, these checkout processes, right? You know, a lot of the things are automated in these kind of systems, right? Taking the credit card payments, scanning everything, um, especially scanning things, right? Like keeping track of the inventory, where it's gone, um, taking appropriate payments, you know, especially with like credit cards, right? Like if your system is down, how do you take a credit card payment? So I remember that a while back, I was working for a uh, retail store, a uh, car rental place, right? And our systems went down, right? And you had to still process the rentals, right? So how do you do that? What is your contingency plan, especially for retail stores, right? In our case, you know, the backup plan was to, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those credit card uh, impression systems, basically impression uh, machines. Basically you, you could put a receipt down or paper down, you put the card down. So uh, I guess you would put the card down below it, right? So card, in the paper, the receipt on top of it, and you run the, the machine across, and it basically just, it forces it together, right? Like it makes an impression on that paper, and then you could have that credit card information uh, right on that receipt or right on that paper. The downside of that particular kind of situation is how do you know the funds are there, right? With credit cards especially, you know, obviously you have to have an authorization for that credit card and then it actually charges the credit card. But, you know, that authorization is kind of what indicates that there's an available uh, capability or balance that you can charge that card. So if you can't do that, do you stop all operations, right? If you don't stop operations and you're taking credit card payments, you know, what happens if that customer leaves with that product and that doesn't go through? right? Do you have to eat that cost as a business? And these are cyber issues for sure, right? Like this is an availability kind of issue. Those systems are down. They're not available to the users when they need them, right? And in a lot of cases, you know, pretty much all cases, unless you're taking cash, uh, having that ability to still intake money, to still process uh, transactions, you know, could stop your business from operating. Then it's, what if it's down for a day? 
What if it's down for a week? What if it's down for a month, right? All these business continuity and disaster recovery planning activities, exercises, and plans all come into play in this situation. That's also why you have to test them in your organization. Because if things happen and systems go down, what do you do, right? Like what's your backup plan? What's plan B to make sure the business continues to run at least the critical systems? With a lot of online businesses, if their website goes down, their transaction, um, their payment processor goes down, right? And then all of a sudden bills come due or you know whatever the case is, does that company go under, right? Like a lot of the companies, for instance, an Amazon, right? They're gonna keep paying their employees. So let's just say hypothetically, right? Their system is down for like two weeks, right? So they missed a paycheck. They're still gonna pay their employees, but that company doesn't have those funds secured. So that, that just creates a compounding issue. But um, you know, anything around disaster recovery and business continuity is always really interesting because those are the things that might seem initially kind of like, well, you know, it, we're not gonna go down, right? Like there's no issue, we haven't had an issue. But when things go down and things happen because things happen, then you're gonna be really, really glad that you have those plans in place, that you have some of this stuff documented so you can just go wherever it's stored, wherever your repository of documents and policies is are, and just start running through them, right? Do you need to contact certain people? Do you need to kick in this system or start this system or whatever, right? So, um, you know, sometimes those don't get a lot of focus, a lot of attention, uh, but trust me, when things go bad and things go wrong, because they will eventually, you're gonna be really, really happy that you have those systems in place and that you've tested them, right? Testing is a crucial thing in that process. You can't just implement, you have to test, right? So that means tabletops. Ideally, that also means actually doing it, right? Like actually restoring backups or kicking over to a failover system. You have to do this stuff, it's crucial, I'm telling you. Uh, let's see here, next article, Microsoft signed malicious Windows drivers used in ransomware attacks. Microsoft has revoked several Microsoft hardware developer accounts after drivers signed through their profiles were used in cyber attacks, including ransomware incidents. The news comes in a coordinated disclosure between Microsoft, Mandiant, Sophos, and Sentinel-1. The researchers explain that the threat actors are utilizing malicious kernel mode hardware drivers whose trust was verified with authentic code signatures from Microsoft's Windows hardware developer program. Microsoft was informed that drivers, and this is a quote, certified by Microsoft's Windows hardware developer program were being used maliciously in post-exploitation activity. In these attacks, the attackers had already gained administrative privileges on compromised systems prior to the use of drivers, explained the advisory from Microsoft. When kernel mode hardware drivers are loaded into Windows, they gain the highest privilege level on the operating system. So, if you're not familiar with how operating systems work in general, uh, definitely look it up because it's pretty interesting, right? But the idea is that there are these different, um, these different areas, right? So like there's the kernel, the operating system, and like all these different areas where basically, basically the idea is that the closer the, to the hardware that you get, the more power that you have. So the kernel itself is really, really powerful, right? even this uh, system level uh, privileges. 
but that's the idea. So the, the further away you get from the hardware, the more you can kind of restrict privileges. And then you get to like the operating system where you have, you know, your software privileges and like your user uh, permissions and things like that. But when you're close to the kernel, if that can be impacted, infected, exploited, then a lot of that stuff, pretty much basically all that stuff is gonna run with system level privileges. So the highest level that you can have, right? And so that's a serious issue. Whenever we see kernel level exploits or kernel level vulnerabilities or you know hardware vulnerabilities, right? All that stuff is very serious because that is the most um, sensitive area of the system, right? If you get control of that stuff, the other stuff becomes easier to gain control of, right? If you can gain control of the system before it boots up and then it boots up, well, everything you've loaded after the fact doesn't matter, right? Like that stuff won't have more security in a lot of cases than that kernel mode software or that other stuff, right? So it's really, really crucial. And any kind of vulnerability like this is just extremely sensitive. It's extremely critical that you get it fixed if you can. We saw, uh, get, gosh, I guess it was about four years ago, I think it was, three years ago, something like that. Uh, there was some serious issues coming out with uh, Intel processors. And, you know, I, there's not really any way else to explain it, right? Those kind of vulnerabilities are extremely dangerous. And they are a little bit more sophisticated in a lot of cases as far as how they're going to infect a system. You know, maybe you have to actually get physical access to the hardware. So that's kind of a limitation, right? Versus software when you can do it over the wire. But, you know, very, very serious. Very, um, just don't, don't underestimate those kind of vulnerabilities. That's why protecting your hardware, doing things like TPM chips and uh, trusted module pl uh, platform chips to secure and encrypt the, um, the hardware, you know, all that stuff is really, really important. And that's why you see Microsoft starting to go to that method too, right? Like with Windows 11, where you have to have a TPM chip to actually enable all the stuff. You know, that, that's why you're seeing that because it's just, you've learned over time that you've got to protect the hardware too. You can't just protect the software. It's really important. Okay. Let's see here. All right, so this one's really interesting. Now this is about vulnerabilities uh, themselves. Google releases dev tool to list vulnerabilities in project dependencies. Google has launched an OSV scanner, a new tool that allows developers to scan for vulnerabilities in open source software dependencies used in their project. The scanner draws data from osv.dev, a distributed vulnerability database for open source uh, code that Google released in February, 2021 to offer relevant information about known security issues affecting open source code. Open source software developers typically rely in their projects on a number of already available tools, libraries, and components that typically leads, leads to faster development of more complex solutions. These building blocks are often crucial for the core functionality of a program, given uh, giving its specialized capabilities that would otherwise have to be rewritten from scratch. Yeah, so code reuse is a normal thing, right? Like if you're not familiar with that, Basically, the more that you can reuse code, a lot of times better, it's better, right? So if I can create really good functionality code, this maybe module or something, and it's you know secure, I can put it everywhere or whatever, and it will just it will save me time, save me resources, 
it'll just make life better, right? The problem is that's not always the case, right? Like it's not always secure. It's not always well-written. And one of the things that you see is in software as it evolves over the years. So, you know, let's say on day one, you create some software and you import this specific library into your code, right? Okay, great. Everything functions as normal as you would expect. In 10 years, let's say your software is really evolved and it's kind of spread out. And then that code, that library is really integral. Uh, it's really important in your software, right? Now, all of a sudden we find vulnerabilities in that code, right? That's an issue, right? And you've heard me say before that you wanna be careful about how you build dependencies on other platforms, other companies, other people, whatever, right? Because the more ingrained that gets over time, the harder it is to get away from that. But the ability to identify vulnerabilities in general is really important, right? And code, again, code reuse is normal, right? But we just wanna be able to identify vulnerabilities, especially in open source software, because open source software is open source, right? Like a lot of people in the world contribute to open source software. And that's the idea. It's crowdsourcing things like fixing bugs, fixing vulnerabilities, fixing uh, issues, adding functionality, right? Like all that stuff is part of open source software versus closed source software, like uh, Microsoft Windows, right? Microsoft develops Windows, closed source. They have access to the source code. They're doing all the development. Uh, they're, they're updating, you know, the software, releasing patches, all that stuff. So um, this is a good step because developers more and more are trying to use open source software. And the more that we can allow them to scan their software, scan their code, look for vulnerabilities, especially in their dependencies, the packages, their libraries that they're bringing in, the more secure overall that it's going to make what they're, you know, developing, right? Or at least they will know what the issue is. and Potentially, maybe they can fix it, right? So um, really, really good step and really great to see this happening. Uh, if you deal with any open source software, I would check this out, right? Check out this tool to scan for vulnerabilities in your open source uh, dependencies. There's no reason not to, right? Try it out, see how it works, see if you like it. Let me know if you tried it out and you like it. Uh, I'd really be interested to hear about it. But this is a really, um, good step and a really um, a positive thing, right? Like we like to see these major players release tools that are gonna help developers uh, in developing secure code, especially, right? Not just developing code, but secure code, especially. So uh, with that, that's gonna be the last article for today. This was your Threat Intel Briefing for December 11th, 2022 through December 17th, 2022. I'm your host, John Good. Again, remember, if you're on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe. If you're listening on podcasting platform, subscribe, leave us a review, let us know how you're doing. Check out the description for a link to the show notes where we put all the articles so you can look back at them, look a little bit more at those specific articles that we covered, or look at some other articles that we didn't necessarily cover in this show. And uh, with that, thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time.